hundred shooters, it's my obligation. Betty Shabazz, speak truth to the congregation. My rider moment, the governor is a fucking coward. Racism, the conduit to white power. Jay Nixon, welcome, welcome, world. Welcome, America. Welcome, South Florida, to a new episode of Let's Talk About It. This is really a podcast because the real show is going to be launching in January. It's been a while since I've been on the air. It's been over a year, actually. A lot of things have happened in that year. One of the main things that's happened in that year that a lot of people may not know is that my wife gave birth to a baby boy about eight months ago. Right now, what you're listening to in the background is Tef Poe. Tef Poe is a hip-hop artist out of Missouri that's been at the forefront of some of the protests that have been going on. And that's what we're going to talk about today. See, on Friday, just this past Friday, I was in Miami, Florida. And for the first time in the history that I know of in Miami, Florida, young people of all races, and I want to stress that of all races, some old folks, folks from all walks of life, shut down the 195, known as the Julia Tuttle Highway, during the height of one of the most lucrative times of the year for Miami, during Art Basel. And they did that for a reason. Locally, they did that for one reason, which is the tasing death of Israel Hernandez. Israel Hernandez was a young Colombian-American artist that was tased to death by Miami Beach police veteran George Mercado over a year ago, for which an investigation still hasn't concluded. They still haven't decided whether they're going to charge or arrest him, and he's still on the force. For folks in Miami, this was also a protest of the fact that in 25 years, and you know, Miami has a really long, sordid history of a lot of really bad things happening and a lot of corrupt policing practices. That doesn't mean all Miami cops are bad. It just means that there's a clear history, and it's a history that most folks in Miami recognize. It's been 25 years since a single police officer has been charged with murdering anyone on duty. But they were also protesting for Eric Garner, and they were protesting for Mike Brown. And I know there's a lot of people that are going to say there's nothing connecting these people. Mike Brown was a thug, and Eric Garner wasn't. The big difference, in my opinion, is that Eric Garner, what happened to him was caught on tape. And if it wasn't caught on tape, Eric Garner would be known as the big cigarette-selling smuggler thug. And Bill O'Reilly wouldn't give a shit. And a whole bunch of other people wouldn't care either. But I want to start talking about this moment. Because right now there's a moment going on where in virtually every city across the country there's been a protest, a disruptive protest under the hashtag shut it down. Where major highway arteries, major shopping centers during the height of Christmas season, major government buildings have been virtually shut down by nonviolent protesters. Nonviolent protesters. So we can't call these riots anymore. I'm going to start talking about the genesis of some of this because a couple months ago, I had the chance to talk to folks in Ferguson about how some of this started. And I think it's important to go back to that. I think it's important to go back to that because what happened in Ferguson, whether you agree with it or not, has been a catalyst for what's happening around the country. And we have a choice right now about whether we want to address what's happening with proactive solutions or whether folks in power just want to see if they can ride this out and do nothing. I would propose that the time for doing nothing is over. And the one thing that I am going to say over and over again is that the solutions to the specific moment have to come from the top at this moment. And at this moment, the president has to act. And at this moment, the Justice Department has to act. We can talk about a whole bunch of other solutions, but I believe if we don't talk about that now, then we're wasting an opportunity of a lifetime to really make some of this change fundamentally. And so I hope you stay for the whole thing. And I hope you learn something. And I hope you teach me something. Anyway, I'm going to take a breath for a moment, even while much of America is screaming that they can't breathe. I'll be back in a second. Oh. 
So something very special happened in Ferguson. And I want to talk about that first before we talk about everything else. And I want to talk a little bit about the people that I've met on the phone, the people that I've spoken to on the phone. One of the people I asked, a friend of the show, Reverend Seku, who's been in Ferguson for quite a while. And I asked him what was so different about Ferguson. Fundamental question before us, right, is not whether or not Michael Brown's case is unique. Given as the Malcolm X grassroots movement has consistently stated that every 28 hours someone black is killed by the police. So in that sense, it's, it's not new. What is unique about it is the blatant disrespect of leaving his body uncovered in the street for four and a half hours. The sheer indignity that was afforded to him, to his body, his family, and his community. And then I met a young man by the name of Larry Fellows, who's from Ferguson. And I asked him why he got involved. I mean, initially, it was just, you know, me showing up to his vigil on that Sunday night. And the police were already an hour before showing up with guard dogs and, and riot gear like they were expecting something. And that was a little, for me, personally, standoffish. It's like, what exactly are they preparing for? People are coming in to pay their respects to a life that was lost irresponsibly. And it became all these questions in my head, like, why are they really? here like what are they expecting and, and why did it take them so long with the initial um, handling of mike's body there's so many questions and then like as you pose all these questions you start asking for answers um, and when you're not getting the answers then you show up and you protest I, I kept showing up with friends and protesting initially after the first days of getting tear gassed and being shot at and being told to go home and being told that we weren't peacefully assembling and that was all a lie. So it was more like a, a pushback towards the, the system that's telling us to shut up. I, I kept showing up. So then I talked to Purvi Shaw from the Center for Constitutional Rights out in New York who was down in Ferguson about why she went to Ferguson. I think for me, I think like many of us, I was sort of watching from afar and could kind of get a sense that this was an important moment and that young people were resisting sort of, you know, business as usual and the status quo. And I think as I sort of watched the events unfold on the news, I think my immediate reaction was, you know, it's sort of the obligation of many of us to stand with them. And so... As rapidly as I could, I tried to go down there to, one, try to get a better sense of what was happening from being there on the ground. But secondly, you know, to recognize that it's not an insignificant moment in this country where young people who are organically coming together and with their bodies resisting police violence. And then I spoke to Ashley Yates, who's with Millennial Activists United, another group that's on the ground in Ferguson. And then I asked her why she does what she does as a resident of Ferguson. On a basic level, I'm passionate about my community. I'm passionate about my people. I feel a grand sense of duty and responsibility to do everything I can to ensure that these things don't happen to us, that we're not murdered down, killed senselessly in the street, and repeatedly don't see justice served. Everyone in my generation was extremely affected by Trayvon Martin, um, but there are select few people that live in Sanford. This is home, so we have the ability to drive right down the street and say, how can we help you? You know, we don't have to reach out across hundreds of miles and try to find a way to be effective. This is home, so you take care of home. And then I talked to Terry Marshall, who's with an organization called Intelligent Mischief from Boston, about why he came down. I'm in Ferguson right now. It's my third time being here in the last four months. I've grown up as a black male in the United States, so the, the issue of young black people being shot down by the police and unarmed is not new to me. It's something that's like so dearly to me throughout my whole life. I, I myself was almost shot by a police officer when I was 15. 
but what interests me to come down here to see for myself what was going on was just the community's response. Like, it wasn't just, like, a flash of plan protest. It seems people were out here in the streets every night really committed to seeking justice, but also to transform the relationship between the police and uh, low-income black communities and urban communities. A lot of people want to talk at great length about the riots. And I, you know, I had a chance to speak to Ashley Yates about that from Millennial Activist United. When we're on the front lines now, it's not so much about that reactionary anger that was happening in the first days and in the first weeks. So now what's happening on the front lines is that we're really showing people what it means to be young and black and stand for something. We're appealing to their humanity. We're appealing to who they are as a person behind the badge. So there are conversations that are actually happening on the front line that I don't think people are really grasping or it's getting out in the media. If you're prioritizing the looting over the fact that a father and a stepfather and a mother no longer have their child, that a family no longer has their cousin or their brother, if you're prioritizing the loss of property over that life, examine your thinking. The society at large is taught to view us as kind of criminals in, in wait, as bombs, you know, waiting to explode. So they treat us as such. They treat us like we need to be snuffed out before we explode. You know, we don't act any differently. We're not criminals lying in wait. We're just humans. We have dreams. We breathe. We eat just like anyone else. And this is what Larry Fellows had to say. Protests have haven't been violent. I don't know where this idea comes from. They're based in this off of two days of unrest. And then again, like you're putting the value of property over the value of human life. Windows can be replaced. Buildings can be replaced. Human lives cannot be replaced. You cannot bring back Mike Brown. You cannot bring back Ezel Ford. You cannot bring back Ayanna Jones. You cannot bring back Tanisha Anderson. These families will never get their family members back. And here's the irony of the riot conversation, right? And this is what people don't get. And Carlos Miller from Photography is Not a Crime talks about this a little bit as well. So the community's very pissed off. If they riot like, like some of them did, the whole country will look down upon them. But at the same time, it was the riots that brought the attention to Ferguson. If it wasn't for that, you know, this would have just been swept under the carpet. Here's what people aren't getting. The only reason there was a grand jury investigation, let's all be clear, this is not me condoning riots. This is not me saying riots are okay. But the only reason any witnesses were even interviewed by the police or by the Justice Department was to quell rioting. Let's just remember, no one would have heard of Ferguson. No one would have heard of Mike Brown. No one would have heard about the tanks and armed personnel carriers that the Ferguson Police Department has. No one would have heard of anything that happened. You wouldn't have heard about the case of 50-year-old Henry Davis, who was wrongfully arrested by Ferguson Police Department. What I mean by wrongfully arrested is in 2009, they were looking for another Henry Davis, and they arrested him instead. And somehow, somewhere, in the arresting process, he was beat senseless to the point where he started bleeding on officer's uniform, for which he was then charged with four counts of property damage. That happened in 2009 in the Ferguson Police Department. And we know about that today because of everything that happened to Ferguson. So for those of you that keep saying, oh, well, it's just about riots and and why are they destroying their own neighborhoods and why are they doing this and why are they doing that? The funny thing is, if out of three months of activity, mostly nonviolent protests, all you remember is seven days, more or less, of rioting, what you're telling is you're giving a message to everyone that that's what matters. And you're giving a message to everyone that put their work into nonviolent protests. You're telling all those people, you know, we don't care about what you did. All we care about is the rioting, because that's all we're going to talk about. Okay, I'm going to take another deep breath. I'll be right back, even as America can't breathe.
This whole conversation on race, I think it's one of the most nerve-wracking conversations because I feel like there's a lot of things that are being left unsaid. And even when I talk to different people, when I interview different people, there was even different perspectives about how to talk about race. You know, one of the things when I talked to Carlos Miller from Photography is Not a Crime is he stressed the fact that, in his mind, this was not just a racial thing. The one thing you know that needs to be emphasized, the one thing I've seen talking to people, a lot of people still think this is a racial thing and it's not a black and white thing. Yes, there's a lot of racial issues. This goes back on their history with the Ferguson Police Department. This is just something that's kind of a part of what's happening all over the country. And black people are getting killed, but white people are getting killed, and Hispanic people are getting killed, and cops are just out of control, and, and cops you know, are black, white, Hispanic, they're the ones doing the killing. Okay, I agree with parts of that, and I don't agree with all of it, but he continues. That's the one thing I think has divided a lot of people over this issue. Even some of the people who read my website, a lot of people have taken this, you know, this mythical story of these witnesses that supposedly say they, they saw Mike Brown beating up on the cop, which never happened because they're made up. They would post this photo that was somebody else with a broken eye socket, and there's still a lot of that. Missouri is still very southern, and no one wants to claim racism. People here, a lot of white like people here, don't want to talk about racism. They feel it's attack on themselves. They don't want to talk about it, so they tune out. They tune out, and then they think the black people are protesting or just making an issue out of nothing, when there is a big issue. The big issue is cops are killing people, and they're not getting punished for it. When I spoke to Mervyn McConnell, who's also been heavily involved with a lot of the leaders and a lot of the emerging young people coming out of Ferguson, T broke down why he thinks that a lot of folks, specifically a lot of white folks in Ferguson, were really confused about the conversations on race. Ferguson is a lot like Long Island. It's a lot like Inglewood. In the sense that I think in the first few weeks of protest, people and media had an understanding of Ferguson as like some very, very poor place, you know, stuck in intractable poverty. And that's not the case in Ferguson. Ferguson is an inner ring suburb of St. Louis. And like a lot of cities, when white flight happens, it's followed by middle-class black flight, people who actually have jobs and are able to like take their kids out of the city. And that's what Ferguson is. So I think that's an important note about Ferguson to help understand the sort of dynamics that happen there. It's working in middle class, uh, majority black. And I think because of that, the white folks in Ferguson had no idea they had a problem because people look for, I think, visible signs of, of racial strife. And it didn't feel like there was any. And when I spoke to Patrice Calores, co-founder of Black Lives Matters, she seemed to think that the media didn't talk enough about the movement that is emerging over there. In Ferguson, I think what I've seen and what I've noticed is the level of allyship that exists right now amongst white folks with the black community, because it's a very black and white city, is pretty phenomenal. Now, in some ways, I agree with Carlos's assessment to some extent. You know, the, the, the unspoken conversation on race is that there are actually white people that get killed by the police. And what happens in those cases is actually really similar to what happens when black folks get killed by the police. And that doesn't mean that race has nothing to do with this. It means there's a couple different things going on. One is a conversation on race. And two is a conversation on policing. We've heard the conversation around black lives matter. And the conversation about whether black lives matter to white lives. But a significant percentage of white folks don't even care about white people that are victims of police brutality and white people that are victims of police killing. A significant percentage of white folks should be getting up in arms, should be getting pissed off 
about the many, many white folks that do get killed by the police. And there are plenty of stories out there. There has to be a question when we talk about race about why white folks don't seem to care enough about even white people that get killed by the police in unjust circumstances. You know, this hits particularly home being from South Florida when we talk about the case of Charles Imers. Charles Imers is originally from Saginaw, Michigan. It hits home for me because I'm originally from Saginaw, Michigan. His son went to a different high school than I went to, but he was like three degrees of separation from me. Never met the guy. A bunch of my friends did. Anyway, Charles Imers is a retired auto worker who came down to Key West. Charles Imers is no longer with us. This morning, Florida authorities are investigating the death of a man in Key West after he was arrested by police. The Michigan retiree moved to the island paradise for sun and sand. That came to a sudden end after a routine traffic stop. Key West is known for its relaxed, worry-free manner, but one family is raising concerns about city police after conflicting reports of a man's death. After a Thanksgiving Day encounter with Key West police. He was murdered by those officers. You believe there was a cover-up? In the aftermath, yeah, definitely. Imers had just arrived from Michigan when Key West police pulled him over in front of this pizza hut for reckless driving. According to police, he fled the scene, and several officers followed him to this beach. Official documents obtained by CBS News offer differing accounts of Imer's encounter with police and what happened next. In the police report, Imer's was charged with resisting an officer with violence. But this cell phone video, shot by a bystander and released nearly two weeks after the arrest, shows none of those versions are accurate. Imer's can be seen walking away from his car and surrendering before police approach with guns drawn. Under Florida law, an autopsy is required on anyone who dies in police custody, but Imers almost didn't get one. Instead of being sent to the medical examiner's office, his body ended up at this funeral home and was almost cremated. When an autopsy was finally performed, initial results showed Imers had 10 fractured ribs and bruises and abrasions on his wrists from handcuffs. On August 27th, less than a month after Mike Brown was killed, a grand jury cleared the officers that killed Charles Imers. And the family is filing a wrongful death lawsuit in district court. But this is a white guy that was killed by the police. Now, when you look at some of the blogs, some of the blogs will pick this case out and be like, well, why does anyone care about this case? But that's my question. People in Ferguson happen to care about what happened to Mike Brown. People in Ferguson happen to care about what happened and said no more. And a lot of conservative blogs, not just conservative blogs, a lot of naysayer blogs are like, well, why don't you care about this instance of police brutality? Why don't you care about this one that happened? And my question is, well, why don't you? Around the country, you have people that are like, this is no more. And they're not saying no more for Mike Brown. They're saying no more for anybody. Now, do I think that folks have done a good enough job connecting the different people that have been victims of police violence no not necessarily probably not maybe not i don't know people are human beings but this does raise a question if you open up the newspaper on any given week there are people of every race that get killed to be clear african-american folks are 20 times more likely to get killed by police but seems like there is an epidemic of police officers killing people and getting away with it or at least not having proper investigations which brings me to my second problem when white folks sit on juries a disproportionate amount of white folks tend to believe anything a police officer says, even when the circumstantial evidence suggests otherwise, even when the story doesn't make sense. If there's another racial conversation that needs to be had, you know, when we talk about race in this country, we'll think, start thinking about the Ku Klux Klan, they start thinking about slavery, they start thinking about all these other things, and folks look at that and they're like, I'm not a Klan's member, I've never lynched anybody, so th this can't apply to me. But you may sit on a jury, 
there's plenty of really good people that make really bad decisions based upon preconceived notions. White folks disproportionately believe authority figures even when they shouldn't. In this specific context, they disproportionately believe police officers even when they shouldn't. I'm not saying all police officers are lying. I'm just saying that there's times that they're clearly lying. And white folks that sit on a jury have a tendency to believe them. White folks that sit on a jury also have a tendency to not believe black eyewitnesses. I mean, this has been studied over and over again. And that's the real race problem that we're not talking about. Is how really good people can go on a jury, hear stuff that makes no damn sense whatsoever, and see an investigation that is clearly a conflict of interest, is clearly riddled with inconsistencies, and just be like, huh, okay. I feel the need to stress that the protest that I was at, like the shutdown in Miami, was overwhelmingly multiracial. Not only was it overwhelmingly multiracial, but as people were blocking off a major artery of the city, even a lot of the reactions from motorists was multiracially positive, let me just say. Those folks of all races, including white folks that had very positive reactions, would sometimes put their hands up in unison with protesters that were putting their hands up, would say, it's great that you're doing this. You know, the majority of the negative reactions were often from white motorists as well. I mean, these were folks that were blocked in traffic indefinitely. And were probably not that happy about it. And some would be like, I'm glad you're doing this. That's something to keep in mind. That's something to stress. So I'm going to take another breath, and I'll be right back, even as America is screaming out. It can't breathe. It's really easy to listen to this conversation and feel like this is a dumping on cops and all cops are bad. Here's the thing. And at this point, all of us have friends that are cops. All of us have at least one family member that is, was, or wants to be a police officer. And a real easy thing is to have a conversation of not all cops are bad or there's plenty of good cops or most cops do their job. And here's what folks aren't getting is that in a scenario where it's become nearly impossible to convict a police officer who may be dirty for killing people on duty, it no longer matters in that scenario whether they're good or bad cops. Because in a place like Miami, New York, New Orleans, but even at this point Ferguson, even the smallest towns, in a scenario where you cannot seem to put a cop in jail when they actually do something, that you cannot put a bad apple cop in jail, it doesn't matter whether there's bad apples or good apples. Because there's no incentive to be a good apple in that scenario. Let's come back to Miami real quick. Around 2010, Adam Tavis, who was a former Miami Beach cop, in one week Adam Tavis shot and killed two unarmed men, one Palestinian, one Haitian, in Miami Beach on duty. In one week. You know how hard it is to kill people? You know how hard it is to kill two people in one week? He eventually gets kicked off the force, but it has nothing to do with his shooting two people in one week. He gets kicked off the force because he gets caught with drugs in his system and walks away with a $17,000 payout. And then he would later get arrested. Once again, he didn't get arrested for killing anyone or shooting anyone. He later gets arrested because they discover that he was growing drugs in his house. If you're willing to shoot someone who's unarmed, if you're willing to lie about it, and if you're able to get away with it, there's nothing that's stopping you from doing other stuff that's wrong. You know, murder is kind of the top tier. There's nothing stopping you from planting drugs on someone. Nothing stopping you from growing drugs yourself. Nothing stopping you from taking bribes. And that's the thing is as long as we cannot prosecute bad cops for killing folks, this distinction and this conversation around how some cops are good and some cops are bad is no longer going to matter. That's the conversation that most Americans are unwilling to have. We're doing this to ourselves. We're doing this to our system. And we're doing this to good cops even.
Now, I feel like there's a full-fledged movement underway. And to hear Reverend Seku say it, there's a lot that's different this time. Every day there is a protest, somehow, some way. People are meeting, organizing, and there's a new generation of leadership that has emerged that is younger, that is queer, that is radical, and that is deeply committed to the ways in which we come to understand what's at stake in our democracy. And according to Patrice Kalours, for all the talk of violence, there's actually been a significant, significant, significantly large number of people that have taken it upon themselves to learn and to be trained in civil disobedience. At this point, over 600 people have been trained in civil disobedience, and folks are sort of taking lead in their own small action across the county of St. Louis to shut the entire city down and pushing the rest of the country to step up and shut our cities down in the same manner. So right now in Oakland, the BART system is, is shut down. And I think that's important because we're trying to elevate both the actions and the risks they're taking for black lives and to end state violence. And a lot of these folks that we're talking about are really, really young. This is really a youth-led movement, and it is a movement live at the same time. We're seeing young people come into this work. They don't belong to any organization, and so they're learning as they go, you know? They're learning about how to engage other folks, how to bring more folks in, how to, how to work with each other, how to work across organizations, and I think that that's something that we're all watching every night as things happen. That's pretty amazing to watch. That's pretty amazing to witness. And Phil Agnew, a good friend of mine from Dream Defenders, describes it another way. You know, there's a whirlwind going on right now, and more and more people are being awakened, and the concept of non-cooperation, the concept of taking their dollar and putting it somewhere else, the concept of every time I spend a dollar, I'm supporting a system no matter what process I go to, is taking hold. And just a sense that everything that we've tried before isn't working. Uh, the way of doing things is in Christ. You know, this is a time to act and to dream bigger than we have before because simply more people are watching and more people are aware. And we have a lot at stake now. And people are realizing that we have a lot more power than we thought we did, whether financial or whether just people power, which is sometimes immeasurable, but you can see it. I mean, people want to keep talking about this as if young people aren't fighting for anything. And you can disagree with the tactics, but there's a real sense of something has to be done. What is most beautiful and inspiring about this moment is it's like the sheer dignity to live is what people are fighting for. And here's the thing that keeps killing me, and here's the thing that keeps getting to me, is we are always complaining about how young people are apathetic. We're always complaining about how young people don't care. And we can just think of the things we did or didn't care about when we were 16, 17, or 18 years old, even 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. And what's happening around the country today Ferguson and beyond is way different than that. And I, I think there's a couple other things. There's been a lot of talk about the Al Sharptons of the world and Al Sharpton's tentacles are here. And this is a group of young people that literally cursed civil rights legend Jesse Jackson out for trying to raise money for a church. And a lot of the people I'm talking to on the ground have said that the folks that are fighting are fighting on top of everything to be independent and to not be bought out. What they will not do and what they've very impressively done is absolutely resist anybody that wants to co-opt them. Anybody who, even if their intentions are well-meaning, they are just refusing to feed their own leadership. And I think, what more could we ask for? I think it's something that people find at times challenging to deal with. But I think if you take a moment and you take a step back, it, it's absolutely, it's really inspiring. Like we say, oh, our, this generation of young people, they're apathetic. You know, they don't care about anything. And I think if you go to Ferguson, you would 
see nothing farther than the truth. What they've created is a culture of political engagement, of civic engagement. And that's all to say that there is a movement. It's not just in Ferguson anymore. There's a movement starting around the country. Now, we've already had the conversation on race and on Black Lives Mattering and, and why folks are saying Black Lives Matter rather than All Lives Matter. This conversation of Black Lives Matter is critical, not because we think that it's only about black people, but rather it is about having a conversation about this country's history of black people that then informs this country's relationship to other races. It's less about a call for sort of like segregation and more of a call for allyship, but I think for us, the conversation starts there. In almost all of these rallies, you see a significant number of white folks. I feel like I have not seen a single rally with folks that have their fists in the air saying kill whitey or some craziness like that. I, I really think that folks that think that that's what's happening and a lot of these protests around the country really are stuck in watching too much TV from the 1970s. It is okay to acknowledge that a movement's happening and then dismiss it. But first you must acknowledge that a movement is growing. It is okay to hear a hashtag like Black Lives Matter and criticize it. But first you have to hear out the thought process behind it. As people that claim to live in a democratic society, it feels really foolish and really cynical to start criticizing people that take the most amount of initiative to engage in the democratic process in the face of extreme injustice. So I'm going to take another breath, and I'll be right back, even as America is screaming out, it can't breathe. And I'm in denial And it don't take no x-ray to see right through my smile I know I'll be on the go no drink out there that can numb my soul. Oh no. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is break the chains off, man. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is be free. So, I feel like it'll be incredibly irresponsible if we didn't start talking about what the way forward is in all of this. And I think it'll be equally as irresponsible. If we started talking in generalities, if we started talking about ending racism, or, which we have to do, or if we talk about learning to love one another, which is true, it would be really irresponsible of me to sit here and tell you that we have to change the broader isms and schisms and that we all have to look at ourselves and look inside ourselves and all this other bullshit that we say every time there's a tragedy, right? The fact of the matter is there are moral laws that say you can't murder. There are state laws that say you can't murder. There are federal laws that say you can't murder. There are federal laws that say that you're not allowed to deprive rights under the color of law. Now, as I said before, and this is specifically a shout out to the good cops out there, the distinction of good cops and bad cops does not matter if you cannot get rid of the bad cops. If you can't put cops that kill people on the job unlawfully in jail for killing. If you can't put people that violate the rights of citizens in jail for violating their rights. Those distinctions don't matter anymore. Talking about isms and schisms and isations and broader systems and systemic work doesn't matter if you have a set of federal laws that are on the books that our current existing attorney general, the very first black attorney general, could be prosecuting local law enforcement on. It doesn't matter if you have a president that would love to meet with people and talk about the problems of the world but can't direct his attorney general to start prosecuting people for violating rights when it says it's against federal law to do so. But we have a president that gives millions of dollars of federal funds to police agencies who have officers that violate people's rights in violation of federal law. 
it does not make any sense for us to start pointing fingers anywhere else. We already know that local prosecutors cannot and will not prosecute cops within their jurisdiction for violating people's rights while on the job or for killing people while on the job. We already know that that's a fact. Now, if we know that's a fact, to keep expecting that to happen at this point feels ridiculous to me. To me, there's only one real immediate way forward, and that's for our president to start charging people. It's for the feds to start cutting the funds of agencies that employ officers that violate people's rights. That's it. Everything else feels like bullshit. It's not that it is bullshit, but it feels like bullshit. In this country, we have two different crises when it comes to criminal justice. We have a crisis in terms of civilians, specifically civilians of color, but not only civilians of color. A crisis of mass incarceration, over-incarceration, and a reliance on incarceration. When it comes to law enforcement officials who violate the law, it's the exact opposite problem. Now, the people that I talked to had a lot to say about what are the ways forward. For example, this is what Larry Fellows had to tell me. Having dialogue with the people in your city, having conversations with your family, with your church members, with people you go to school with, with people you work with, tackling what's really going on in this country and why people feel the way they do on both sides, I think that creates a better future. Make people uncomfortable. Do research like this isn't just a Ferguson issue. This has been happening all over the country where black and brown bodies have been murdered by police and, and then there's this cover-up and there's no accountability. There's no repercussions for the officers, so they continue to do it. I mean, if you would get away with murder, what would you do? And Terry told me what he believed the way forward was as well. You know, the reason why this is able to happen to black communities and poor black and brown communities is because we're not well organized as a community as a whole. It doesn't have to be this way. So we don't have money to counteract that, but what we do have is like our bodies and our power, and so we need to be organized. What I, what I feel could come out of this is more networks, networks of people who've been trained in organizing, networks of people who've been trained in like how to take care of each other and actually get a plan. It's not just about Ferguson, right? It's about nationally, the system has to change. So we need a plan about how we're gonna organize communities across the country you know, with a single voice. Carlos Miller, the entire time I spoke to him, has one specific mantra about what everyday citizens can do. Always have cameras on you. Anytime you see a cop, just put on that camera, just turn it on and start recording. As soon as the cop pulls you over, turn it on and start recording. As soon as the cop starts talking, you turn it on and start recording. Just be ready. Practice that. Practice that. Purvi, a very specific take on the message and the demands that people have. From afar, and then obviously when I went on the ground, like I think what compelled me the most about it was some of the very simple narratives and slogans that were coming out of this. I mean, the demands weren't super complex. They were, stop killing us. When you see 15-year-olds, you know, 15-year-olds leaving their homes every single night, and their simple demand is, my life matters. I have a right to live. You know, I think that is just something that, for me, it just hits me right in the center of my stomach. And people always ask Mervyn what the youth are fighting for in Ferguson. And today, what they're going to be fighting for in Staten Island, New York City, and all the cities across the country. This is what he had to say. My sense is that young people here um, have a bottom line, and that until the civil rights and the, and the rights guaranteed by the Constitution accrue to all of those who live here, then we're not willing to be having some other type of conversation. That's my sense of what young people are, where they're at, right? <clears throat> and I think that the question is, who gets to benefit from these alleged civil liberties that we have in this country, right? And I think that's the question that folks are struggling with and are very crystal clear about. 
So that's number one. And then number two, I think that, you know, this idea that this is a problem that can just be solved through local political negotiation is one that young people are also not particularly interested in. The question of cops being held accountable for their for their bad behavior and for their legal behavior is a big one. And, you know, part of what this weekend was about is about saying there needs to be a broad and national conversation about this and policy shift around this. And part of that is that politicians are afraid to take on police unions. Police unions have the best contracts of any any labor organization in the country. They're the only labor force that has the right to take people's lives away. And I think that that's a, that's a big question. And until we see political movement around dealing with these extrajudicial protections that police have, and that we won't actually see the shifts we need to see. I think there is some real work to do, not only in Ferguson, not only in St. Louis overall, but I think also in cities across the country around moving beyond this notion of one bad cop. Like when youth are chanting in the streets, like the whole damn system is guilty as hell, like they actually mean it as opposed to um, the whole damn system is guilty as hell. And now let's go into a meeting and figure out what pieces we can get out of it. So I think that there are actors on the ground, certainly coalitions that are more like grass cops that are working on a strategy to um, implement civilian review, implement, you know, more oversight, implement, you know, sort of diversity and hiring in police departments. And I think for young people, they're really struggling with the question around what they do know is that, like, nothing has worked in other cities, no matter what. And so they want to they wanna do the thing that works. And I think we're all trying to figure it out. We all need to make sure that we continue to lift up this drumbeat that started in Ferguson, um, wherever it is around the country where we are, in some way, shape, or form. I mean, you know, we need to stand up and show up. I'm just hoping that people of color, people that look like me, or, or people that look like Mike, so many of us, that we're able to walk down our own streets without being harassed, that we're able to drive vehicles that belong to us without being harassed about who it belongs to. And I'm over people automatically assuming that we're all criminals without even knowing us personally. That has to stop. We're just really asking people to examine how we got here. And once you examine how we got here, then to work on making sure we can't get there again. I mean, well, America's presented with a choice, right? What kind of nation will it be? Is it going to choose life or death? You've been listening to Let's Talk About It on letstalkaboutitradio.com. I'll be back at the beginning of the year with our regular broadcast. You might hear a few podcasts from me moving forward on this crazy, crazy situation that we're dealing with. Thank you all so much for listening. And I'm in denial And it don't take no x-ray to see right through my smile I know I'll be on the go And it ain't no drink out there that can numb my soul Oh no all we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is break the chains off. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is break the chains off. All we want to do is be free.